Welcome to Coach House Talks. It's good to worship God together, isn't it? It's good to kind of just put a bit of focus back on things. And uh, we're going to carry on looking through, through Acts. I might cut this a bit short. You'll be glad to know. Then again, I might not. My favourite uh, band uh, is a band called Josh. It's a band called Magnum. Anyway, on their Facebook page just um, this week, they, they kind of put a kind of a strange announcement out. Basically, they said, we are going on tour regardless of what is happening in the world. It's a bit of a strange statement to make, given that venues are cancelling all over the place and people like Jamie are completely out of work at this moment in time. But nevertheless, they made this statement, we will still, t- still tour. That was their intention as they were obligated to fulfil the commitments that they had to do the shows. In other words, they'd made a commitment, they were going to go out and tour, people had bought tickets, promoters had done their job, all those kind of things, we're committed to going out and doing this. However, lots of people are aware of the risk of attending due to the virus that's going on at the moment and have voiced their concerns directly to the band, urging them to cancel. It's on the Facebook pages, look, this is crazy, I'm at risk. And if I come and see you, much as I want to, I'm at risk. The obligation to fulfil the tour dates and press on is this, because if the band cancels, then they are liable for all the costs, for all of the... everything that they need to do, everything that they booked, they are liable for it. If the venues cancel, then the obligation for that cost is lifted off them. So you can see why they're going, no, we're going regardless. And you can also see why other people are saying, no, 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 don't go. Until the venues cancel, the band remains obligated to its commitments and long-term plan. Well, why am I telling you that? Well, I'm telling you that simply because I'm hoping it will help you focus on the passage this morning because there's a, there's a tension in the passage. So I thought once we get so far through Acts that once we kind of dealt with the early church and things that actually when we start getting to Paul's missionary journeys and uh, yeah, we all get shipwrecked and all these different things but I thought actually this is pretty plain sailing, pardon the pun. He just visits places and you know, it's going to be fairly innocuous, isn't it? Last few chapters. Actually... They throw up quite a lot of confusing stuff. And this is one of them. So let's just pray. Because we might have contradictions in this passage. Father, we know that your word is true. And we know that you speak clearly through your word. Lord, we know that you want to speak to us this morning. So Father, we just pray that we will have open hearts to listen and hear that, Lord, your spirit will guide us, that you will allow us to discern truth. Lord, will you minister to us this morning? Will you encourage us? Will you speak to us? In the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're up to uh, Acts 21, just in case you're uh, wondering. So last week you'll have heard how the Ephesian... Um, elders were distraught at seeing Paul leave them for the last time. And it was apparent to them from Paul's farewell that they would not meet again. So Paul was kind of giving them this message. 
I really want, I love you dearly, come and meet me, but it's unlikely I'm going to get to you again. There's a steely determination in Paul's attitude. My path is planned and my life is not my own. I'm going there. I'm going where this journey takes me. How sure of the path that we're on are we? Can you see your destination? Can you see where you are heading? Is the finishing line before your eyes? I ask this because knowing the destination determines our attitude to the journey. If we know where we're going, then it will help us to deal with things as they come against us. When they, you know, we know where we're going, so the journey takes shape in light of that. Can you see the destination? The destination determines our attitude to the journey. Corrie ten Boom once said this, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. See, we might not know all the answers of everything that comes against us and assails us day by day, but we do know this. God orders our lives. And we can trust in a known God, even if what we're going through seems unknown. The beginning of Acts 21 appears to be a little contradictory. So a view of the final destination is required. We need to be able to see through Paul's eyes what it is that he's looking at. Acts 20, which we read last week, tells us Paul's destination and his purpose. And it says this in Acts 20, verse 22. And here's the destination. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. And here's his purpose. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And some of the readings and some of the songs and the passages that Tina wrote, they finish with this Hang on a second, it's about telling people about the goodness of Jesus. So there's his purpose, but his destination is this. He's going to Jerusalem. He's bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So Paul declares it. And being bound means what? Well, it means being compelled, being driven. It's my duty or purpose. So this isn't some fanciful wish that Paul's got to go to Jerusalem. It's a weighty acknowledgement that this is where God wants me. This is where I'm going, regardless of what lies before me. So this is really important to grasp as we go into chapter 21. We have to deal with what looks like a contradiction in the Spirit's direction. Remember, a view of the destination determines our attitude to the journey. So that's where Paul is. In other words, our ability to discern the truth amongst all that is going on around, around us and amongst us. 
As Paul sets out from my latest, we'll put a map up, I think, so you can see roughly where we're going. So my latest is up there, and he's heading down here for Jerusalem. He's going to kind of come into the, to the, to the shore down here, come bypassing Cyprus. He's heading for Jerusalem. That's his journey. That's where he's going. He's got a view of that destination. And as Paul sets sail from Miletus, he does a bit of highland, island hopping. He goes from Kos to Rhodes before finally passing Cyprus and ending up at the Syrian port of Tyre where he stays with the believers for a week. Now during this time we're told this, Acts 21.4, these believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go to Jerusalem. See the contradiction? The Spirit has told Paul, I am bound to go to Jerusalem. But everywhere he goes, believers are saying, the Holy Spirit has told us, don't go. Trouble awaits you. So there's a contradiction. How can Paul be compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem whilst the believers can prophesy by the Holy Spirit that he should not go? How can both statements be of God and true if they seemingly are opposed to one another? Well, I think it's how we view them. Our view of the destination will change the way that we journey. Often when prophecies are given, they are multi-layered. You'll see it in the Old Testament. You'll see that prophecies are given, and then there's prophecies within prophecies, but there's one overriding prophecy, and there's prophecies within it. And you'll see it all the time in the Old Testament. They're all related to the same thing. And some have failed to grasp this and argued that Paul was disobeying the Spirit when he went to Jerusalem. You will read some commentaries, you'll pick some commentaries up. If you go and do a bit of outside reading around this passage, you will find that lots of people claim that Paul disobeyed the Spirit and went to Jerusalem, and he should never have gone. And if he hadn't have gone, he wouldn't have gone through the hardships he had. And if he hadn't have gone, he wouldn't have been put in chains and went to, sent to Rome. But Paul knew that that was what was going to happen to him. With some certainty for some time before this. So there's, there's the destination layer. You will go to Jerusalem. And then there are the details of the hardships and our reaction to them details of the journey. There's knowledge from Paul himself and probably from the outside world as persecution was still a daily part of life. Paul had been beaten in Philippi. He'd endured riots against the way in Thessalonica. He'd generally mistreated in a host of cities. And now he was heading for Jerusalem and certain persecution. After all, the believers had been scattered from Jerusalem in the first place through persecution. And Paul's been tasked with bringing aid to the church there. There's another compelling reason why Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. He'd already been tasked with bringing aid to the church and the believers there. We even have a very graphic illustration from a prophet in Acts 21, a prophet that we met for the first time back in Acts 11, a guy called Agabus, who'd prophesied a famine over the Roman world, which we're told was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. That's what we're told in Acts 11. 
So this is no lightweight. This is somebody who's got a proven past when he says what he's saying. And in Acts 21, 10, he says this. Well, it says this. Several days later, a man named Agabus, who also had the gift of prophecy, arrived from Judea. He came over, took Paul's belt, and bound his own feet and hands with it. Then he said, The Holy Spirit declares, So shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the local believers all begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So here we see the local believers try and turn Paul away from his mission of getting to Jerusalem. Are they telling Paul to disobey God? Well, actually, no. They're concerned about his safety and they're expressing a love and concern for him. If you go there, you're going to get beaten up. You are going to get persecuted. Why go? Paul's response to their concern gave them true perspective because this is Paul's reply. Paul says this, why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am ready not only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die for the sake of the Lord Jesus. When it was clear that we couldn't persuade him, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. The Lord's will be done. He has a higher plan and purpose, and it's greater than our human point of view. And notice that it's Luke who's writing this account. So Luke is obviously one of those that's trying to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem. We tried to argue against him. We decided that we couldn't persuade him. And this is Luke writing. So Luke, one of the closest companions, is also involved in this. Don't go to Jerusalem. If I was paraphrasing this, I'd say this. Paul's destination and response helped the believers to discern the Lord's will for Paul's life. It satisfied their objections, which were well intended. So Paul knows where he's going, and Paul knows full well, because we read it in Acts 20 from last week. We'll just read it again quickly. And now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me, except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. So all these people that are saying, don't go to Jerusalem, suffering lies ahead, by the Holy Spirit, we're only telling the truth. Suffering and truth does, and, and, and suffering and jail does lie ahead of you. But Paul knew the big picture. And so as he explains this to these believers, they're able to discern the truth based on all of the facts. Maybe a parallel with Jesus will help to illustrate the different levels on which we think. And I think Luke wants us to see this. Luke is trying to draw comparisons about what Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and what happened to Jesus was in the same way of what was going to happen to Paul. So maybe this will help. Matthew 16, 21 says this. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law. 
He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But Peter, one of his closest associates, took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. So was Peter going against what Jesus wanted to say, or was he just voicing concern that, Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving us? Why do you head on this path? And Jesus turned to Peter and said this, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. So you see, the Holy Spirit can speak to us, but then we can stick our own thoughts on it. And we can act out of our own fears. We can act out of our own concern for somebody. And that's pretty much what was happening here. The destination's in view, but the details of the journey and what would happen were becoming known. And this created conflict for Peter, who could not bear to think of Jesus suffering or even dying. He acted out of human concern and love, but his view was not on the whole picture. He didn't have all of the facts. Jesus could clearly see the destination ahead. His revelation was greater than that of Peter's. So it needed some clarification. Peter didn't know and couldn't understand all the entirety that Jesus understood. And the same is true with Paul. We see the same concern from the believer's actions towards Paul, who had lived amongst them. He's established their churches. He isn't just flitted in and flitted out. As we've gone through these passages in Acts, we'll know that he spent years with some of these people, lived with them, encouraged them, committed them to be part of their communities. And guess what? They don't want to go and see him suffer. Don't go. Therefore, we don't have contradictions of the Spirit's leading, just reactions to the various elements of the full picture. In my spirit, I can feel somebody's pain, and it might cause me to cry out and dissuade somebody from a course of action. I've had phone calls this week with people. Keeping personal integrity can sometimes create a whole path of pain. But if it's the correct thing to do, then it's just the correct thing to do. Human concerns have to be put aside. And I have to ask this question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus have done in the circumstances? Well, we've already been told it, because he set his sights on Jerusalem and nothing turned him away from it. Even his closest companions tried to turn him away from it. Paul himself urged the church in Thessalonica, and because it's recorded in Scripture, we can take it to ourselves as well. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said, and hold on to what is good, and stay away from every kind of evil. We have it within ourselves to test what is going on. Paul tested what was being said and determined how it fitted with God's commands on his life. He was bound to go to Jerusalem, so what does all this other stuff mean? Well, it's just confirming, actually, that when I get there, I'm going to suffer. 
And am I going to turn away from it? No. So he finally arrives in Jerusalem and meets up with the Jerusalem church, headed up by James. On his return, a full report of what's been happening with the Gentiles is given, and there is much joy. But there's an undercurrent. There's an undertone to what's going on. See, James seems to want to point out that the Jews are also believers and are becoming believers by the many thousands. And a Jewish agenda starts to surface. There appears to have been a false rumour flying around that Paul was telling Jews to abandon their following of the law of Moses. Well, if you remember when we looked at Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem, which brought up the tricky situation of what it looks like to be a Christian in different cultures and what rules should be applied, the tricky one was circumcision. We demand that if you're a believer, you should be circumcised. And the Council of Jerusalem said, no, that is not a requisite of salvation. And in order to help the Gentiles join the believers, a few rules were suggested. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols, consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals to keep, and to keep from sexual immorality. There's your rules. There's your standards. But you do not need to be circumcised just to prove that you're a believer. That's Jewish. And it can stay Jewish. And I'm quite happy for it to stay Jewish. Here in Jerusalem, where the believers are still predominantly Jewish and we're told are zealous for the law of Moses... There is a presumption, wrongly, that Paul was dissuading Jews from obeying the law of Moses. The truth is he never told Jews to stop following the law. Only that they were not obligated to it anymore. You are free. Jesus changes the standard. There is a new covenant. You are now not obligated. But the law is still there. And I'm never going to tell you not to stop following the law. So if you read Paul, that's kind of what he's saying. See, Paul himself, we saw it, in, I think when Jamie did Acts 18, that he had this strange, he cut his hair to signify the end of a vow. Very Jewish. It's a Nazarite vow, basically. And I'll cut my hair to signify that I finished it. So Paul didn't have any problem doing that. He also stated in 1 Corinthians 9.20, as we previously looked at, that he would act in a Jew in order to reach the Jews. And he would act like a Gentile to reach the Gentiles. Paul's aim, regardless of what we think, was to reach people with the truth about Jesus by whatever means possible. A cursory read of the book of Romans should show Paul's respect for the law of Moses for the Jews. So it looks as though Paul compromises his faith when the Jerusalem leaders ask him to pay for and perform a purification ceremony for four men who have completed a vow. But this is not the case. Paul is simply acting respectfully in order to win those that are under the law. But for some, this wasn't good enough. And once again... A mob gathers. This time under the assumption that Paul has taken a Gentile named Trophimus into the temple, which is a no-no. 
Acts 21, 27 says, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple and even defiles this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city. Metrophilus. Seen him in the city. A Gentile from Ephesus. And they assumed that Paul had taken him to the temple. The whole city was rocked by his accusations and a great riot followed and Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in uproar. He immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down amongst the crowd and when the mob saw the commander and the troops coming, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander arrested him and ordered him bound with two chains. He asked the crowd who he was and what he had done, and some shouted one thing and some another. And since he couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar and confusion, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. As Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift up their shoulders to protect him, and the crowds followed in behind, shouting, Kill him! Kill him! Paul in Jerusalem. What do you think Luke's trying to draw our attention to here? Kill him! Kill him. So I've no doubt that Luke's trying to make us see the parallels to the way in which Jesus was unjustly treated and calls for the masses to have him killed. He also shows us the accuracy of the prophecies spoken by Agabus and others. Now there's going to follow a passionate defence of the gospel and a surprising admission. But I'm going to leave that to Daniel to cover next week. For now, let us determine to hear God clearly. In times of trouble, in times of all kinds of things going around us, let us be determined to hear God clearly. To test against what we know and measure against the scriptures that reveal God's character to us, which is unchanging. We have an unchanging God even in changing times. And we should hold on to that. We should fix our eyes on the things that are constant and unchanging. Our path may be certain, uncertain and unknown, but God, the author of all, knows the beginning and the end. Focus on the destination and have faith for the journey because God will get us there, regardless of what we see around us. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.